Now it's True Wealth presented by Little John Financial Services. Here is David Littlejohn with True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang. Welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. I am your host, Dave Littlejohn. Joining me in studio, Matt Dixon. Matt, welcome to this, the best Tunday we've had all week. Indeed. Right? And for those of you that are just showing first, I got to give a I, shout out to Brandon at Cascade Community Credit Union for actually recognizing that. I was in doing a little bit of banking with him, and he's like, Oh, yeah, because it's a ton day, right? And I'm like, oh, he nailed he it. He got so it, huh? I was stoked for that, so I'm giving him a little shout-out on air here. Uh, I so might anyway. venture to say that it's not the best ton day. Well, it's It's raining, not. David. It's, it's the middle of summer. The river should be warming up. I should be floating the river, and it looks like winter outside. So, <laughs> Isn't it wild? I was joking with uh, the team earlier. I was talking to Jan. She came in, and it was raining outside. I go, <laughs> looking out, she's looking out the window. I go, what, is it snowing? And she says, it wouldn't surprise me at this point. Yeah. It's super humid. It's definitely not uh, typical Oregon weather. Like It's got that sticky feeling out there. And it's mm-hmm. not super hot like in the south, but it's definitely really high humidity right now and just sort of steamy like uh you know pour a coke over your head kind of thing are we gonna like cross our fingers that no wildfires happen this year like this just keeps, oh, keeps everything it. that's not cool <laughs> I, I mean i'm delighted that we're keeping some water in the ecosystem because i've had it the last three or four years have just been brutal mm-hmm. fire seasons. so we could use the reprieve for sure so well david what do you got for us today Oh, it's a great question. Great question. You know, I wanted to address a couple things for, so today I want to talk to the person that is, actually, we don't have as many of these as I think, but the person that continues to, I'm going to say, like, you you need to be talked off a cliff or off of the ledge. Yeah. All right. I feel like people need that right now because I've been getting text messages. Are we in a recession? Yeah, we are. Yeah. Right. And I'm guessing at that just so everybody knows, but I'm going to call it early. You heard it here because, right, you can make it's in my opinion, at least it's stupid to make predictions and then not put times on them because all you have to do is wait long enough. So you're you time right. stamping it like seven, so five. I'm 22. saying right now we're in a recession. OK. OK. Meaning the last quarter was slow. was slowing down. This one will be slower. Two consecutive quarters of negative GDP recession. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's but how does we that mean that. that the market has to go down? Well, no, that's See? the part that slays me is the folks often have this disconnect, like the stock market is intrinsically linked to the economy, and it's not. Right. Right. It's a leading indicator. The stock market prices things in faster than the economy does. GDP, by the way, lagging indicator. We mm-hmm. don't even know what it is until after it happened. Right. Okay, the stock market is trying to anticipate where things are headed. It's trying to pre-price this stuff in, which is why there's so much guessing and gaming around it all the time. Yeah, because you have to almost be a step ahead of the economy. Well, in a sense, yeah. I mean, you so but but only in a sense because I think I think this is the gotcha, right? Mm-hmm. We've talked about this on the program before, and it is the idea that folks will misassociate, will look at the numbers or the economy and say, well, that's why the stock market is the way it is. But that's actually not why the stock market is. That's people 
using data to, to fit into justify, a story yeah. to rationalize why they're willing to pay for something mm-hmm. or not pay for something, right? Like it turns out uh, if you're not selling your house, you don't really care what it's worth other than if you have to pay taxes on it. In fact, a lot of people would argue, hey, my house value can be low if I don't have to sell it because I don't want to pay more taxes, at least in our state where you pay property taxes. Mm-hmm. Okay, So while it feels maybe kind of warm and fuzzy, and in fact, there's a what they call the wealth effect when you've got rising house prices, people tend to spend more freely. Is but, that that's a thing, huh? That's a thing. When when you believe that your home is worth more, you tend to spend more. Right. Like when people when the when the economy's strong and your stock market portfolio is strong and your uh, house is worth more, people spend more. Huh. Right. Okay. It's just a psychological event. That, by the way, is the magic. That that's the little secret phrase. The psychology underneath this thing. Mm-hmm. Because really, the price of something you can try to say. Oh, it's worth this much because, and you're now going to fit it to some pricing rationale, some pricing model. Here's how I justify. This is like when people appraise real estate. And what do appraisers do? They look at all the other houses in the area and what people paid for them. And they go, well, here's what's the same. Here's what's different. Here's the stuff people like. Here's the stuff they don't like. Here's the stuff that needs to get replaced. Here's the stuff that's new. And based on that, we'll just kind of rationalize a value. Mm -hmm. And... Okay. And I'm not trying to bash an appraiser when I do that, by the way. That's not the point. I'm just giving you a sense of like, that's their methodology for pricing. So you look at comparables and things that are or are not comparable, and then you rationalize and justify a price point. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you have to convince somebody, if you don't have the cash to pay for it, then you have to convince somebody loan you cash to pay for it. And they have to buy it or they're going to say, no, the collateral is not worth it. We're not willing to take the risk. So now you're seeing how the complexities layer into the system and why if you get enough people agreeing to a value, it kind of acts like the real value, right? So no, my house is worth this much because a bunch of people would buy it from me if I said, hey, I'm selling it for this. <laughs> like I got news for you. My house is worth at least $10, right? Because everybody on the planet's like, I'll buy your house for $10, right? Right? It doesn't matter what shape it's in. It's like it's on dirt, right? Like, all right, I'll buy it for $10. And then somebody else will buy it for $11 if they have to. So like- if I sell it low enough, everybody will buy it. Mm-hmm. So then the question is, how high can I raise the price until there's nobody left willing to buy it? Okay, That's how you arrive at a price. So, so it's just, there's this psychology game, though. How much does somebody want it? The stock market's like that. Now, why are we having this like reliving history moment on a Sunday? I don't know. We're going pretty in depth, pretty quick here. Well, the because you asked the question, right? I, yeah. When I'm going, what are we talking about today, and how? And it's like, well, you know, because look at the economy, and if the economy is not what the market's worth, mm-hmm. what's it worth? What someone's willing to pay for what it. Someone's willing to pay. Now, Matt, do you and I view the markets the same right now? Hmm. I tend to be a little bit more pessimistic, I would say. Yeah. We have definite overlap in our Venn diagrams, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have things oh, yeah. in common. Uh, but we've talked about Matt tends to be more like like you tend to see that there's a lot that, like there's more downside. Mhm. Uh, yeah. Or I and I'm not I don't want to put words in your mouth, right? I'm going to be right. careful about this cuz there it, Matt's thoughtful about this. When so it's it's not like he's just, you know, being a wingnut here. But about this. <laughs> about this. There's a lot of other things yeah, I am a wingnut about. About this. About this. Let's about be this. clear. It's, I would say, you tend to... Err on the side of caution. 
I, I wasn't. I'm thinking more like you tend to follow the trend harder. Okay. Like when things are going up, you yeah. tend to be more like, oh, it's going up. And when yep. things are going down, no, it's going down. Yeah. And so I think you kind of lock into those trends a little bit harder. Oh, and I'm okay. a little bit more of a, I'm a little more cautious about trend recognition or mm -hmm. in particular, I like to look at extremes on trends. Right. So right. if you look at the analysis I do, oftentimes I look for things like mean reversion when, when prices are just too out of whack. Mm -hmm. And so I look for like, oh, that's oversold. Right. And probably a term you hadn't heard much before until we started working together. Oh, yeah. Right. It, uh... But let's be honest for a moment. Right. How often would I say something's oversold? Does it turn around and pop? It, a lot. <laughs> a lot, right? I mean, not always. Not no. always. There's sometimes where it's like, that's where you're like, that thing's going to go even worse. And I'm like, well, let's see. And I don't know. What what would you handicap? I bet you more than 50% of the time I'm right, though. Oh, oh yeah. I'd be like, yeah. maybe 70, 80% of the time? I would say so. I think you're batting 70, 80. Yeah. I, I, I mean, that doesn't mean that, by the way, that those are trading signals, and we don't <laughs> operate on those. No. So, you know, from a fiduciary perspective, we're not traders just tell you that after doing it for a long time you start to see some of this and go oh, yeah, there's a thing there right yep i mean you not what was it a month ago you drew some lines on there and i was looking at something a little bit differently and you're like i see this and then sure enough it just follows the trend right yeah well there there is something to be said for experience but mm -hmm. here's the caution for everybody out there too there's a real issue that people have and this is part of what i want to explore on today's show the idea of confirmation bias mm -hmm. okay so we'll talk a little bit about confirmation bias and data fitting we've talked about that on the program before and then i also want to talk about why do some firms throw numbers out there that sometimes seem really outlandish okay so we're going to talk about a number of things from everywhere from analyst estimates like okay. where are these coming from then we're going to talk a little bit about how do you choose the data that you let in or keep out. Okay, I think all of those can matter. And and here's the part you're not going to want to hear. Spoiler alert, right? Spoiler alert. There's not necessarily a right or wrong answer. So if there's not a right or wrong answer, then we need to really think about how are we going to apply the process, okay. right? How are we going to try to how do we try to make these decisions more consistent, better? So I want to talk to all of my folks that are nervous about that. But first, we got to take a break. Yep, insane profit break. Okay. All right, so we're going to stick around. Uh, we're going to come back. We'll unpack more of that stuff. And again, we're live streaming it now. So if you want to go grab, uh, I think it's on YouTube. I don't know where else to stream Facebook. it. Facebook. Right both. Huh? It's on right. both. Well, we got that and more. So stick around. We'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn. And also Matt Dixon. Yeah, there. Good job. Okay. And you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM and 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Dave Littlejohn in studio with... Matt Dixon. Okay, we're on the live stream, and you can grab that there. It's on YouTube, or it's our LittlejohnFS Facebook page. Mm. And this will be on the podcast tomorrow, too. So if you're grabbing podcasts, now you're, you're getting caught up. Matt. Yes. Okay. Where did we leave these people off at? We, we left them at the idea of how does one come up with a way to price this market when 
and, and, and trying to avoid things like confirmation bias or data fitting. And where do where do some of the numbers come from from analysts? And why does this happen? And if there's not a right or wrong answer to price, how do we oh, man. try I, to like make sense of it and make better decisions? I feel like there's so many different things we could talk about. We could talk about PE ratios and how those look. We could talk about um, analysts using range-bound estimates, like what we talked about earlier this morning, mm -hmm. to try and you know kind of put some guardrails on where the market they they think the market's going to head in the future. Um, there's a lot of different places we could take this. Sure. So let's first the theoretical. Okay. Okay. The, the, let's the start high there. level on this one is prices are going to come from essentially what the person's willing to buy or sell for, and in many cases, you're going to see companies that are, what you're trying to do is project trend. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they're going to look for things that indicate a directional trend and they're going to be trying to essentially handicap whether that trend is likely to improve or get worse. Okay. So that's step one. Now let's try to use this as a case study, like a real world example. Okay. If you believe that the economy is going to get worse from here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then here's this is a story some people tell themselves, right? Well, the economy is has been running hot, but the Federal Reserve is going to be raising interest rates, and that's going to be increasing the cost of everything, and the economy is going to slow down, and that's going to mean fewer jobs, and that's going to mean that uh, inflation might stop, but it's also going to mean like a lot of people are going to stop spending because the economy is going to be shrinking. Mm -hmm. So if the economy is shrinking, the stock market should go down. And so I should probably sell stuff because I don't want that stuff to shrink while the, with the economy. Okay, so we're going to go into recession. Recessions are bad. That should be bad for the stock market, right? In the past, recessions were bad for stock markets. So I better sell stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. If you're hearing this and nodding to yourself a little bit, okay, here's the challenge. It's only part of the story. Okay. That was the bear analyst story in essence right you could if it was an individual are you going to tell us the the bullish story sure as well sure okay let's hear the opposite well argument here. so the opposite argument for the whole market is well stock market's a leading indicator the federal reserve has said that it was going to be raising interest rates for a while now and we've already seen a really radical shift in 10-year treasury yields so the yield curve told us months ago that it was inverting and that it expected an economic slowdown. Federal Reserve admitted months ago that they were behind the power curve on inflation. And so they were going to be aggressively raising rates. So the 10-year yield was already moving, and the inverted yield curve suggested long-term rates weren't changing, but short-term rates were spiking, which implies that the long-term expectation isn't for significantly higher rates, but short-term it was for higher rates. So the market was already anticipating the Fed's behavior, and it started to price that in. So asset prices changed. How? What supports this? Well, I'm looking at a data point right now for the current value of the S&P 500's price-to-earnings ratio, which has fallen from a peak that occurred back in July of 2021 at almost 47 mm -hmm. to today a value closer to 19. Okay, so that's almost a 75% reduction in PE rate, right? Well, am I doing that? So 47? No, that's not that much. That would be. 
like a 65%, right? So you go from almost a 50 down to 20. Okay. Big drop. Okay. Like 60 yep. ish percent drop in PE ratios. We have not seen PE ratios, which again, that's the price to earnings ratio hasn't been this low since briefly it got that low during the actual economic shutdown of 2020 in March and April. It briefly touched that low in December of 2018. Previous to that, you had to go all the way back into 2015 to see levels that low, which suggests six years ago that we had a PE ratio that low in the marketplace. Six years ago, 2016, that was when Trump was running for office. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you look at the valuations. This was coming out of Obama era administration. We'd had uh, the 2008 debacle. We'd had eight years, lots of government spending. We had uh, declining interest rates, quantitative easing. And then we had, so, so that whole regime, very, very different. What the market would suggest now is that based on the price to earnings ratios, we have priced in a significant economic reduction, 60% reduction in PE rate valuations. Mm -hmm. So that sounds to me a lot like we've already priced the correction in, okay? Or does it because one of them was the bear case and one of them's the bull case? Yeah, which story do you Which story do you like, right? And, and I, I embellished one of them more than the other. Careful, right? Because depending on which one you want to believe... You can latch on to that, and that's what we would call confirmation bias. Right. Right? So You're confirming what you think in you're your You're looking true. for the data that you want. Also, what did I just do in telling the story for the bull market case? You made points, and you I used chose statistics. the data that fit my narrative. Yep. Okay? We didn't talk about things like, well, the increasing cost of interest, right? The, 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 that's a higher price of risk which also changes the relative price of stocks because stocks that pay dividends are less attractive now because risk-free rates have gone up. Mm -hmm. So why would I buy a stock when I could buy a treasury to make 3 or 4% now instead of having to pay a bunch of money to get a 1% yield in my stocks? Mm -hmm. So instead, I would rather buy the treasuries that are more attractively priced today if I want that risk-free rate of return, which means stocks now look overvalued and should drop because of the dividend discount rate you would expect. You really should have been on a, your high school debate team and then just clear the room and put you on one side, talk to yourself on the other, <laughs> and then like run the over side. to the other side and be like, ah, but I got a counterpoint for yeah, you. Do you understand, though, for everybody listening, how you can sell the story? Oh, yeah. Okay, you can sell the story, and you're not necessarily wrong. Okay, the mm -hmm. question is, does the preponderance of the market agree with you? Right? Do do lots of people agree with your position? And my sense is that the market doesn't know what to think yet. It's still trying to find its way. It's it's kind of going. Well, things still look pretty nasty. It could get a lot worse, right? There's a lot of unknown out there from everything from the way Russia's. You know, what if we have escalation in Russia and Ukraine? Yeah, what if they? Right? Get what if the rest about, of the world gets dragged into this? Okay? Yeah, because didn't Finland just join NATO? Or I think uh, it was uh, who was Sweden it? and Finland. I think yeah. both. Yeah, they, they had two and of the, the, the Nordic countries. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's 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 a lot to this, and I'm not even going to claim. 
I can't. No. I don't even want to get into the shallow end of the pool of geopolitics on this. No, one. Okay? there's too much. So I mean, there are there's smart people out there that are going to say, oh, this that and the other. What I'm going to say is that uh, Ukraine has been involved in a lot of issues between Russia and Europe for decades, right? So this is not a new thing. It's just a, a very real thing with real human tragedy right now. But the geopolitics of this region have been going on for a long time. So peel the layers back, though. There's stuff that could go worse, right? Mm -hmm. Energy supply disruption, right? The the war could go to uh, more aggressive, right? It could spread. The, the geopolitical risk of adding more countries to NATO could uh, have you know, maybe move Russia to get more aggressive in some other positioning or, mm -hmm. you know, try to take more territory in Ukraine. Right? China could invade Taiwan. Well, China could invade Taiwan. I mean, that that could happen. China, there's some discussion about, like, you know, are Russia and China allies? Are they frenemies? Mm -hmm. What are they? Right. Right. So there's all these and people are but, going, yeah, right. But you could also argue the other side. Things could get a lot better. Well, you could argue that things could get a lot better. Or let's try arguing this, that. Things may not get better or worse. Maybe the market has already decided it's pretty bad, mm -hmm. right? So the the question is just what doesn't the market know, right? And it has to guess. So the markets don't like to guess a whole lot, which means if we get confirmation of something bad enough, then the markets will likely move. But the flip side of it is this, right? If the economy gets hammered hard enough, do you really think the Federal Reserve will continue to uh, – to, to, to allow, raise rates. Like, to push rates like they are? Right. I mean, could they afford to? Or are they going to be forced to back off? Right. And, and so that's you know. kind of the, the, the question is, is, that a, is it a sustainable policy if it gets really bad? Right. I and mean, the, again, now we go back to data fitting, or are we, when we say, look at the long end of the yield curve. It hasn't radically escalated. It's not suggesting hyperbolic... Uh, rates like Paul Volcker style war on rates. So all of this data is to say that the market doesn't fully know. It's pricing in as best it can right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's another term to start to think about. If the market doesn't really know, right, have we seen really definitive directional trend recently? We've kind of been almost flatlining a little bit. We really have. That's the interesting part about it. If we just use the S&P and not the, the NASDAQ as a gauge for a minute, okay? Mm -hmm. So we are to go look at the S&P in the 52-week range. What's the lowest it's been in the last year? I think it was at like 3650-ish. Yeah, 3636 okay. is what it hit. And if I look at when that occurred, it appears to have hit uh, mid-June, mm -hmm. like June 16th or 17th, somewhere in there. So that's basically three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. We're actually higher than we were three weeks ago. Yeah, and we had a pretty strong end of the day. We had a good you know, end of the quarter, end of the day. Uh, there are other things to consider in the market, too. Uh, a, a really interesting one, like, try this one on. There are some mechanical things that influence the price of the market. Okay? Now, okay. They, th those mechanical things are born out of uh, supply and demand event they're born out of market forces but they a want can sometimes create a structural event uh and if you're curious what i just said like what 
a want creates a structural event. I got to tell you, we got to take a break. It's a good time to leave a cliffhanger for you because structural elements in the market do become like magnets around certain price points. So we'll talk about that in a little bit more right after this break. Okay. All right. So everybody stick around and we'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn and Matt Dixon. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 939 FM and 1240 KQEN. Hey gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Dave Littlejohn in studio with Matt Dixon. All right, Matt. So yes. uh, reminder, if you're just for everybody that's just joining, how do they find the podcast? Uh, they just Google search it, and it magically appears. Okay, I don't believe you, but I love it. <laughs> okay. Right? I mean, you probably could, but if you're going to Google search it, it's Little John Financial Services, True Wealth Radio Show. Like, uh -huh. like this or they could Google just go to like, well, there it is. littlejohnfs.com. Yeah, you can find it through littlejohnfs.com. It's under the Educate tab. If you're in like iTunes or something, you can look up Little John True Wealth, and mm -hmm. it'll probably find it that way for you. There we go. Okay. Uh, so if you're just joining us, we are kind of going through some of the challenges, and I, I really think this is important. There's you know there's a couple of different types of investors out there, maybe not a couple, but a bunch, right? But there's categorically there's some folks that don't really pay much attention to it. Okay, this is the oh, um, like blissfully focused on other things and i say that on purpose right? it's not unaware or ignorant or anything like that that's not what it is they there just, are folks that intentionally yeah. focus on other things because they're committed and convicted in long-term investing and so this is noise to them and they treat it as such and therefore don't engage right i don't open my statements i don't invest a lot of time in tracking this that's why we work with pros and that's why i'm a really long-term investor yep okay so their sleep is not really interrupted by this then there are people that look every now and then, and if the numbers are jarring enough, they go, whoa, right? Or they hear somebody else say, whoa, so they go check, and they're like, oh, okay, I, I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. And then there are folks that get sucked into uh, looking a lot, and they check it so often that you really need to be careful about that, in my opinion, because it starts to shift your thinking to short term. Mm -hmm. Okay, We have had to uh, deal with this professionally within our own team where we get to talking regularly about things and the, the time horizon for decisions starts to compress or shorten and we have to occasionally like take a step back and literally it's like all right everybody stand up and stretch for a second right we we got to get our heads back in the game of investing and not trying to trade this thing too much right that's a real thing right emotions are real but that the, the benefit of having a, a group of professional folks all trying to analyze this and check and balance each other is exactly that it's the checks and balances right because you as my buddy used to say you know your mind's a scary place to go alone <laughs> so bring a friend okay uh... we're talking about the way some some folks especially if you find yourself watching a lot and chasing down a lot of research, you can find yourself going down a rabbit hole, mm -hmm. okay? And that rabbit hole can lead to searching for other people that are gonna say the things you're looking for. Yep. Uh, and, and keep in mind, here's here's another one. Like there are, there are research, especially uh, like social media style environments. Remember that if you consume one piece of data, it's gonna look for other pieces of similar data to show you yep. because it's you validated that this is something you'll pay attention to and they want to rent your eyeballs for more time. Yeah. So they're going to try to incentivize you by appealing to the things that are emotionally uh, or, or for whatever reason they are attention ga garnering. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so so if you're not paying for the product, you're the product, right? That's how that went. Right now, by the way, you listening to the show, you're the product. Okay, <laughs> the the thing is, in a very ethical sale, which I believe we attempt at our firm, we'll flat out tell you what our motivation is. Right, so our motivation is to educate because some of you out there are going to be too too busy or otherwise. Uh, encumbered to deal with some of this stuff or you'll just recognize it's not your wheelhouse and you don't wanna so you need to find somebody that you like and trust that can step in and sort of tag team with you and that's what we're here for so our clientele are people that like and trust us we have sort of a similar worldview and we like each other and we trust each other to work as partnership okay and and that doesn't mean if we're not working together, we don't like you or that you're not cool or anything like that. That's not the point. But it has to be a good fit. Right. It's a good fit for everybody involved. That's the, that's the idea. But for the rest of you all, we've taken this sort of unique idea that we can give away all the information. Okay? Like, I don't need to give any secrets to you about the markets that, that we have that you don't have. Because that's not really how this works. I always say we're not smarter than our clients. We're more specialized. Hey, this is what we do all the time so that you can go do what you do. Right. That's that's the game plan here. So there's our strategy. So we talk about why are we giving this away and how do we how do how does our firm dissect information? Well, you know, we I, I like to do something kind of I think it's a little unusual. It may even be a little back word. <laughs> right? It's like I like to look at the trends first, look at where they're going, establish technical patterns in advance, and from there review fundamental data and see which of those stories fits the market mm-hmm. rather than listening to a story first and then trying to make the market fit the story right so i don't care if the markets are going up or down i mean i care for my clients and i care because we want to make good decisions but i'm not trying to evaluate if the market's go- like why the market's going up or why the market's going down i'm trying to figure out where the market is going period and based on that, try to establish probabilities and then understand the narrative that's driving it. You, you don't want tunnel vision, and it's easy to get trapped right. where you're not actually looking at where yeah. it's going, just what it's doing. Yeah, this is part of our process, by the way. Uh, and it's just something that's come through touching the hot stove a bunch of times, right? Because sometimes that's how you learn is pain. Mm-hmm. And it's come through mentorship from others and a lot of study. And we still get ideas everywhere. Clients share them with us, friends, other professionals, media sources, other people selling stuff. Right? Mm-hmm. So all of that matters. Now, the other people selling stuff. I want to I want to talk about one of the things we mentioned at the break. Mechanical issues in the market. Okay. Okay. We talked a little. This was like the GameStop thing. Remember when we talked about that? Oh now? yeah, yeah, I do. Like, can, can you you remind remind our listeners sort of the GameStop phenomenon and what made that so wacky? Just briefly, I guess. So there was a Reddit board. People got online and said, "Hey, you know this company? We we like video games. We want to buy stock. Let's do it." And they jumped in. They bought the stock and. They wanted to hold on to it because they caught rumor that there was a big short that had happened and a bit uh, like a hedge fund company had shorted more shares than existed. 
And so that was the magic, by the way. And they, so everyone's they shorted like, well, more shares than yeah. was available for them to cover their short. There's the mechanical trap. So right. what happened? Well, so everyone's like, well, why would we sell it? Because, you know, then it gives them the opportunity to return those shares that they shorted. Let's just hold it and drive these hedge fund companies crazy. They did that. And then the hedge fund companies had to return the shares that they shorted and were forced to buy whatever was available. And that drove the price up because there was scarcity. Yeah, huge scarcity. It also coined some funny terms that came out of this. For example, diamond hands. Diamond hands, yes. Right? You remember? I mean, you want to? Do you want to? What is what is diamond hands? I, you're going to describe it better than I can, so I'm going to punt this one off to you because so, it's like, how do you it's, really? It's really as silly as you think. Diamond hands, of course. What's the hardest uh, stone in existence? It's diamond. Mm -hmm. Right. So diamonds are it's not that they're precious. It's that they're really hard. And so the idea of diamond hands is that your hands are so strong that you're going to hang on to those shares, even though the price is volatile. It's fluctuating up and down and you're sort of scared right. and you want to get out because you want to take those profits. But you've got diamond hands. And it's a double entendre, too. Right. The diamond hands mean you're really strong, but it also means by holding these things, you're going to be worth more and more and more because you're going to force the price <laughs> higher and higher and higher. So that's where diamond hands came. Yeah, that's from. a good way to describe it. OK, so, you know, there was diamond hands and then. Uh, what was that was the other one that's the the hands that were the it's not soft hands but something like that for the people that sold out early right so there was diamond hands and oh. then there was the uh something else like yeah. paper hands paper hands well and then there was all of the scourging if you did sell it too well there was a lot of that too like just the... hold it to the bottom yeah. like we're just gonna hold it until it sinks that th that's a whole separate issue yeah. too but paper hands was the other term so diamond yeah. hands were the ones that would hold no matter what Paper hands are the ones that would take profits because they wanted to get out. And then also because, you know, paper was just in it for the, the short term. It's mm -hmm. soft. It was just, oh, I had, you know, my plan all along. And so I got in and got out. But and, and there really was a lot of trash talking online for the paper hands people. So this is an example of a mechanical exploit, though. If the shares didn't exist and, a, and if a hedge fund company has to get them, it's not that the shares didn't exist. It's that the number of them in circulation, there wasn't enough in tradable circulation for them to buy back. Mm -hmm. And so they were they needed to incentivize people that already owned it to sell it back to them because the market makers at the brokerage houses didn't have enough to cover the short position that they authorized. Right. So the hedge funds ended up having to buy it back at really big prices. Do you think they'll ever try and close that loophole to make it to where it you was never supposed to happen you're not supposed right. to be able to short more than was in existence the right. brokers were in on it too that's why it was such a coup right? That, right that the and that's also where another term came from by the way that's where the apes term came from it's like apes are really strong if they all band together and act as a, yeah. as a group and so the retail sector through reddit boards organized and then were able to bully the professional hedge funds that had institutional money backing them. It was a point that I've never seen before in, in the history of the markets, right? It's amazing. Mm -hmm. and, and so I actually love the phenomenon because it felt like for the first time Main Street figured out how to sort of stick it to Wall Street. And I, I'm not trying to hate on Wall Street, but I will say I don't think there should be unfair trades. I don't think institutions should get advantages that retail doesn't have. Mm -hmm. There's a word for that where I'm from, and it's called cheating. I don't like That's cheaters. That's a really sophisticated term right? for it, too. I don't like cheaters. <laughs> right? It's not fair. 
I think everybody should have the same rights in the marketplace. Okay? When you rig the game, okay, you know what we call that? Gambling. Like when I go to a casino, I know the game is rigged against me, so I don't like to do it. Okay, the stock market's not supposed to be rigged against you. It's supposed to be fair. And so the laws are supposed to make that fair. And, and then when you see the things that go wrong and the retail investors, the one that gets holding the, left holding the bag and the institutions come out okay, I'm like, cheating, not cool. Mm-hmm. Okay? But there's another interesting element to the mechanical part of the market. Okay? I'm going to set the table with this before the last, the, the last break here, which is options markets. Okay, options are really important because it's a stated time and price where someone commits to buy or sell something. It's, it's almost like an insurance premium that you can buy, or if you're willing to own something and give somebody else the right to buy it or sell it from you, then you can either purchase or sell options. These create some very interesting mechanical things in the marketplace. I want right. to talk about a biggie that's out there, but we got to take our last break first. Okay. All right, so stick around. When we get back, we're going to talk the mechanical part of the market, and then that the home stretch will be that, and what are we talking about? Capitulation. That, right when we get back. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. Yeah, True Well on News Radio 93.9 FM and 1240 KQEN. All right, gang. Welcome back to the home stretch of the True Wealth Radio Show. Matt, we got some work to do in the last few minutes. Yeah, we have a lot to go over, so let's do it. Okay. So we left our heroes at the, the issue where markets have uh, mechanical issues at play here, mm-hmm. right? And we've talked today about how does market reach price, and in particular, if you're an investor and you're trying to figure out uh, whether you need to be in the market or out of the market and you're panicking over price or whatever, or not panicking over price, right? The question is, what price and why? And so where did it come from? And one of the things is market's a big psychology game, right? How do you get agreement? If people think it's going to get worse, it tends to keep getting worse. People think it's going to get better, it tends to keep getting better. And right now it kind of feels like we don't know what it's doing. Well, that's the the crazy part. Like it, you're, we're getting to a point where you can justify both sides of the story. Mm-hmm. That is something that is traditionally called capitulation. Okay, right? capitulation is the point at when the markets don't know if they're going forward or backward, right? And and I I think that that's a good sign. We start reaching a point where there's a lot of nerves, people are uncomfortable, and they also don't really know how to value this market. I mean, it's interesting to me when you start to see people revising their estimates lower. Okay, some of why would you do that? By the way, maybe a couple of reasons. Well, if the the way I look at it would be, you know, well, if I guess too low, right, and then the market never gets there and it goes higher, then people are like, hurrah! Like, you know, things mm-hmm. are they're not upset that it didn't go that low. Um, whereas if you have your estimates too high and the market goes below that point well now you look like you were behind the eight ball mm-hmm. so they would rather err on the side of caution than not yeah, show enough. expectation management yeah that's a really easy way to describe it sure. right yeah that's i would rather it. sandbag certain estimates yep. and be you know and be and be wrong that way than set set a target too high and miss it Mm-hmm. Right, so if if you're a pessimist and you're wrong, then people just go, "Well, you know, it turned out better than we thought." But if you're an optimist and you're wrong, people are like, "Where were you on that one, bozo?" Right. So yeah, I think that it's it's a safer bet to be a pessimist when the markets are going down. 
right? And because people get slayed for that one, right? Anytime you go out there and you make a call and you're wrong, people are just like, oh, you're an idiot, right? Mm -hmm. And the people, you have to be careful too. Like you'll find these uh, research sites where they'll make a call both directions. And what they'll do is they'll just wait to see which search shows up the most. Or they'll promote the one that ended up being right. Right. Okay, and I'm not going to name names, Motley Fool, but uh, <laughs> you know that stuff can happen where it's like, well, if you ran the gauntlet perfect and bought this sequence of stocks that happened two years ago, you'd be a gazillionaire. Like, yeah, did anybody do it? See our well, article that said no. to buy, and it's like, it's yeah, because I always say like, yeah, if you had the way to like make a billion dollars trading stock in the market, why would you tell everybody the exploit and lose the ability to do it and then try and sell it for twenty nine ninety nine? Right, unless yeah. you're manipulating the market through some form of pump and dump, because that's the other other scary thing is like what happens if analysts are saying well we need to influence the direction of the market so if we mm-hmm. want it to get worse because we're counter the position look in the fine print to see if they're shorting the market when they make a call for a lower market yeah because you are supposed to disclose uh if you have if you make a position in, in something that you're offering an opinion around okay but uh th- that it doesn't necessarily show up that way easily right so you kind of got to chase that disclosure down so anyway Capitulation's a really big deal. Here's the other one, uh, options market. Okay? The derivatives market in some estimates dwarfs the actual stock market. Right? So the number of people, like there's, when you think about the stock Tesla, Tesla's like the number one derivative stock out there. More options on Tesla than any other stock, as I understand it. Save, and I, I, maybe the S&P 500, the SPY is the ETF for that. There's probably a lot of options around that, but that's not a stock, that's, an index fund, mm-hmm. effectively. So, uh, so the if Tesla is heavily optioned, then you know, well, so people want some volatility because that's how options tend to benefit you, right? And then lo and behold, you see a lot of volatility in that stock, uh, but you see a lot of interest in it too. So there's a really big option play out there. I got to give credit again. I'm going to give a shout out to my sister-in-law who's was the one that pointed out we actually do own a position in some of our portfolios in something called the JP Morgan Equity Premium Index ETF, mm-hmm. right? I believe that's what it's called. So anyway, JP Morgan, you guys probably heard that name before, and they have a mutual fund and then some exchange traded funds that are essentially kind of a range bound fund. And they do that by using derivatives or buying options. So they kind of put protection above and below so you can expect the return over a period of time to more or less fall within a certain range. And it's not perfectly that, but it it sticks to that pretty well. It's one of the largest option blocks purchased every quarter in the entire world. And it's so big that it tends to influence the price of all of the other options that occur that are bought or sold over that quarter. Because they can look and say, hey, let's use the same data. In essence, right? So think about like, well, if I know an institutional player just took a huge position expecting the market to stay between these two points, then it's like a magnet that tends to hold it there. Doesn't mean it won't break out, but it means that it's a significant influence. Right, okay. because if it gets to one extreme, everyone's like, "Hey, you know, it's hitting the extreme on this guardrail. Let's let's gear up for the other direction." Right. So what happens is people trade around it. Exactly. Right? And so once people start trading around it, it becomes another thing that influences psychology. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a mechanical. It's like a line in the sand. Okay? Yeah. It doesn't mean you can't cross that line in the sand. It just means that a lot of people will work around it. Mm-hmm. Okay? Or work in between those two lines. Yes. Yeah. And so there's those are all factors that come into play here. And so I'm, I'm wary about the person 
that suggests that there's no need for any form of quantitative analysis in market behavior because markets are traded by a lot of computers, mm -hmm. right? And the derivatives marketplace is priced by a lot of computers. So if you're going to use a lot of computers, you're going to get data trends, and you know data drives more data. So I think that you can see some trend recognition and uh, maybe the term trend compulsion. Mm -hmm. Because you know, if if all the computers are doing it a certain way, it starts to drive things a certain way, uh, and then you get different buy and sell programs that will exacerbate a trend in the short term. So, so the long and short of it is, I can't tell you where this market is going, but I can tell you that the probabilities continue to improve. That the the you know the probability of a fifty percent downside from here is a lot lower than it was. 20 points higher like to like when we before the bear market hit the probability of 50 percent correction may have been x percent but it's x minus now because we've already lost a pretty good chunk so i'm just very careful about getting overly pessimistic in a forward-looking mechanism that you know it's it's pricing a lot of this stuff already in so uh, historically, bear markets somewhere in the ballpark of about two years to recover. Uh, it can take longer than that, but on average, about two years uh, to get back to where you started-ish, right? And so that's not a, a hard quote number, but it's a keep that in the back of your mind, and it can go a long way toward managing your expectations. So hopefully, this snapshot at you know how markets get priced, why, and how you can really tell whatever story you want can ground you a little bit into less trading and a little bit more long-term as an investor. If you're a trader, different podcast for you. But for investors, this too shall pass. So, Look, we're out of time, Matt. How do they reach us? 541-375-0898. All right. So if you don't have that financial pro in your life and you need a second opinion, give us a shout or check out the webpage at littlejohnfs.com. We're out of time. So... Until next time, this has been David Littlejohn and Matt Dixon. You've been listening to True Wealth on News Radio 939 FM and 1240 KQEN. Have a good one. The preceding program was paid for by Littlejohn Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.